Ayn Rand's novels and philosophy have inspired millions of people around the world. You often hear people say things like, Ayn Rand changed my life, or Ayn Rand showed me how to really live. What lessons are people taking away from Rand's work? What does she have to say that is unique? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we celebrate Ayn Rand's birthday, February 2nd, and we're going to discuss some life lessons that Ayn Rand offers. I'm Ankar Gatte, and joining me today is my colleague at ARI, Aaron Smith. Okay, major life lesson. Remember to unmute. <laughs> Back there to Ayn go. Rand. Thank you. <laughs> um, so first of all, start with just a little context setting. So hi, everyone. Uh, obviously, happy birthday, Ayn Rand. This would have been, what, 117? I think 117 years old, I think. Uh, so Ayn Rand's changed a, a lot of people's lives, certainly ours. And so we're happy to uh, take the time on February 2nd to celebrate her birthday. We have a lot of people uh, tuning in from Latin America today. So a special welcome to all the audience from Latin America. Now we had arranged for simultaneous translation in Spanish for today's episode, but we're having some technical trouble um, and so the interpreter may or may not be here. So if she shows up, that's awesome. If not, uh, best of luck. Uh, I only speak English, uh, unfortunately. So welcome. Um, today, so this, the, the focus of the episode today is on life lessons that uh, we've, we can identify or we've learned from Ayn Rand. And obviously there are many kinds of lessons that one might draw from Ayn Rand's work or her life story or her philosophy. Uh, that you find useful. Our focus today, I mean, obviously, the, the, the few that we're going to bring up today are not meant to be exhaustive, obviously. Um, and you may have some of your own you wish to share, like whether maybe in the Q&A or, or, or in the chat or whatever. Uh, we'd be happy to hear them. Our approach today stems really from uh, Rand's view that what she was, um, she was a moral radical. She was a radical about the nature of morality, and she thought that um, what really needed to be rethought was the whole way we think about ethics, about morality, about right and wrong, of good and evil. Uh, and she had really distinctive views. And some of the things that we're going to be bringing up today uh, really have their root in the distinctive way she thinks about good and evil, about right and wrong. Um, so that's really where we're going to draw some of these lessons. Uh, so we'll be focusing mostly on moral issues or issues related to, uh, to morality. And uh, so I, we put these, we can maybe four lessons or whatever we drew. So what's the first one? Yeah, let me kick off the first one. This is something that certainly when I, the first book of Ayn Rand's that I read was Atlas Shrugged. This is something that left, leapt off the page for me. And in terms of, you said that she's a radical, that it was part of what I got is what she's saying. There's a lot of things that we think of as evil that she thinks are good. And there's a lot of things that we think of as good that she thinks are actually evil. And this is on the first half of that, that there's things that we typically label as evil or at least sort of not morally significant. It belongs in the category of the amoral, that if you're really concerned with what's good, with what's valuable, with what's moral, this won't be your concern. So it's something that this, this first lesson, and I put it as 
business, the world of business, the activity of business is a noble activity. To be an, a businessman is a noble profession. And the way in which we look at people who, oh, you're a doctor or a nurse, um, that or a policeman or a fireman, like that's a noble profession. That's something that it makes sense to devote your life to. She thinks that the whole realm and world of business should we should have that attitude towards it. And I remember when I first encountered this, like I it wasn't that I disliked businessmen, but I never had considered that one should think of it. This is a moral activity. And I think if we if you ask in terms of these life lessons, this is the life lesson that has, particularly in America, has really reached people. That if you ask what kind of impact has Ayn Rand had, the I think the major impact is she has inspired a lot of people, and particularly in the US, in America, and I've met many people like this, I'm sure Aaron, you've met many people like this, who talk about, they read Ayn Rand, and especially they read Atlas Shrugged, and the world opened up that, so, so many of the heroes in Atlas Shrugged, there's an oil magnet, a steel magnet, um, people building uh, um, automotive cars, people building airplanes, and, and like they're major builders. So they're industrialists and leaders in the business world. And they're portrayed as this is an activity that takes an enormous amount of thought uh, and creativity, that they're making new things. It takes a tremendous amount of courage. They often encounter uh, either indifference, like, oh, you're not going to be able to do that, or outright opposition, that you're disturbing the status quo and we're going to have to relearn things. I mean, one of the heroes in Atlas Shrug invents a new metal. And it, it's a new metal that will transform the way things are built and so on. So it'll be highly disruptive. And people who have been building steel, it's a metal superior to steel, that they're going to be put out of business. And, so, and there's a whole element of that. Like, this is this is too innovative. This will disturb, disturb our lethargy, in effect. And yet he presses forward. So there's a tremendous amount of courage involved. And part of what Ayn Rand portrays is these are the people who move human life forward. That I mean, so she's writing Atlas Shrugged in the 1950s. And if you think back what life was like a hundred years before that, it's just radically different. You don't have trains, automobiles, telecommunication, telephones, and telegraphs. Um, you don't have all modern medicine. All of this is brought to when you say when it's that a normal person can enjoy and take advantage of these things. It's brought into existence by businessmen and particularly big businessmen who make the, these products at scale and are made, able to make a profit doing that. So th there's a portrait of the whole activity and career of business as this is something really good. And our attitude should be not, are oh, you kind of money grubber? You 
person seeking profits and so it should be yeah if you devote your life to this and do something that's actually creative productive like a to, to go into the more contemporary world a steve jobs a bill gates um uh that that we should admire these people and it should have an aspect that's a moral admiration for this this is just something it's really unprecedented i don't think there's any parallel in the world for this attitude towards business yeah and i think it really is because it's stemming from a completely different perspective on the whole goal and enterprise of morality uh you know so if you think about as ayn rand does that the standard of good and evil uh is man's life what's appropriate to man's life you know um you'd have to regard the activity of big business i think as 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 a, as a tremendous source for good because in essence it's about the production of material values uh and and services that advance our lives in so many ways so if you have a, a morality that takes life as the standard of what counts as what's good like that which hinders man's life is the bad the evil and that which uh, helps and sustains it and, and enriches it is the good um you'd have a different perspective on the nature of business and what what it has brought and this often gets misinterpreted of course because then it's like uh ayn rand uh, likes all businessmen or something like that and it, that that's not the way to hold it it's not that every businessman it's good it's that the activity of business of production trade organization of large scale endeavors that are involved with the creation and distribution of values and the actual activity that goes on um it's to think about what is the essence of business what is the essence of production uh not is somebody in that role in that line of work and one way to think about that, one way I think about that is if you think of the parallels to other professions. So it's true that she doesn't respect or admire every businessman, and that's not a lesson to take from Ayn Rand or from objectivism. But the lesson to take is she doesn't respect them or admire them because they don't live up to the essence of their profession. So nobody thinks when you meet a doctor, and I mean, there's been cases like this, um, say to the, the US gymnast team, a doctor who has completely defaulted and I mean, perversely on his actual professional responsibilities. And now he's actually exploiting and assaulting the woman under his care. Nobody thinks, oh yeah, maybe doctor, like that's a bad profession they think this person doesn't live up to the actual profession of what this is and that's her same attitude towards businessmen who cut corners or businessmen who don't really produce anything and they go to the government and they ask for favors and they ask that the government go after their competitors and really screw them so that it's i can stay in business i'm not very good but i stay in business because the government's penalizing my superior competitors she doesn't think of these people as actually businessmen in the same way that you don't think of a doctor who assaults his patients as he's really a doctor. It's he's masquerading as a doctor. Um, and it's the same if you have an attitude that this profession of figuring out how to produce things profitably so that the businessman is enriching himself as he builds and as he trades and, and a Jeff Bezos becomes the richest person in the world because he's building things 
that, yeah, his customers want, like I want two day delivery of almost anything, but he's able to make a profit so that he is benefiting from it. We're benefiting from it. That's a tremendously difficult thing to do. And one's view of this whole profession is, this is what moves the world forward. And if you have a negative attitude towards this profession, the, there's a real question. This is what Ayn Rand makes you face is, are you taking your own life seriously? Do you actually value your own life if the profession that more than any other profession moves the average person's life forward? You have a negative view about it. It's like, yeah, there's something wrong and dirty about this profession. Then are you really valuing your own life if that's your attitude? And she, like, that's a question any reader who's really grappling with Atlas Shrugged, that's an issue you have to grapple with. Yeah, because part of the, the the lesson there is that you need to learn to think that way. You need to learn to, or to, you need to come to understand business in that way. It's not how we're taught to think about business. Um, yeah, particularly and it, it, there's not many novels that a businessman is a hero, let alone in Atlas Shrugged, he's a moral hero. He's like, this is someone morally you should emulate. I mean, th there's no other book that conveys that message. But you do get a, a certain kind of valuing of hard work, industriousness, you know, things like that, but not to think of the act of production as a moral uh, virtue. And she certainly does. Speaking of, yeah, uh, so uh, go ahead. I was just, I was just thinking of say, taking so your life seriously. Yeah, that's a big, yeah. It, there's a lag. It, it, yeah, we have a bit of a lag. In terms of the of a life lesson, it's like this is an example. I think there's, as you said, we're we're not going to get anywhere exhaustive, but this is an example of the what it means that she's a moral radical. She's asking you to rethink issues of value at the root that it is, you just have to watch for a week and, and watch with this, an eye to this for a week television. And if you ask, even in America, which is supposedly the most business friendly country, if you watch a week of television and movies and you don't have to look for it, like just whatever it is that you're actually watching and pay attention to how often is a businessman portrayed as a villain, as morally dubious, as motivated by bad things, as an unsavory character. And it's just taken for granted. Like, yeah, he's a businessman, of course he's bad. Um, and her view is like, this is perverse. You've learned what you've been taught is, it's not just like a little wrong. You've been taught to look at something that you should admire and you've been taught to spit on it. And that is like, if you really cherish your life, you have to rethink this issue of value at its root. Um, and that like the wider lesson that I think you, you can get from Ayn Rand is she's demanding that you rethink, but rethink things deep down. And coming back to that, you know, what you said about, you know, do you really take your own life seriously? I think we can uh, move to another lesson uh, uh, and I, wasn't sure exactly how to formulate this, but I put it as uh, think of career as a source of joy. That may sound odd to people, 
<laughs> uh, depending on what your job is, what your career is at the moment. Um, but uh, let me explain what I, what I mean by that. So when I first read uh, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, uh, the main character is Howard Rourke. He's an architect and he's, he's been kicked out of uh, architectural school. And he's been he's had the opportunity to come speak with the dean of the architecture school, and you know how Rourke, the main character, he's explaining why he's trying to live up to his own standards, and it's the, it's his own uh, artistic standards, and this is what he's mainly at odds with with the school and why they kicked him out. Uh, he's and he's explaining to the dean what like why I stick to these standards like why I want to do my own work my own way. And he said something that really stuck with me when I was, I guess, about Howard Rourke's age <laughs> uh, in the story. He says, and it's, I'll read this as a quote, this is from Mountainhead. He tells the dean of the architecture school, quote, I have, let's say, 60 years to live. Most of that time will be the work I want to do. I feel joy in it that I'm only condemning myself to torture. And joy only if I do my work in the best way possible, end quote. So I think what, what really struck me about this is that, you know, he mentions uh, his lifespan. So he says, he, he, so he's about 22, I think, in the story at this time. Um, and he says, I've got about 60 years to live. So he mentions his lifespan, that's the context. Um, and it stresses that, you know, you have a limited time. Uh, it's time you don't get back, and you have to think about what goals you're pursuing in that context. What do you want out of life? What kind of a person do you want to become? What kind of a life do you want to shape and lead? And that what you do with that time is precious. Um, I mean, and it's true also that what he says is, you know, most of that time is going to be spent working. So most of us spend most of our lives, at least as adults, um, involved in some area of work. Um, it's really how you spend most of the hours of your days and your, your mental effort as you're thinking about work and what work requires and so on. And that takes up the majority of your time. So I think part of the message is to think about, um, think about career, think about the avenue you take uh, to, um, to your work uh, with the same kind of seriousness you take to, uh, toward your life, because really your work is what things amount to, how you spend the days of your life to a large degree. Um, and it, I think it really comes from the seriousness with which Ayn Rand takes the pursuit of happiness and that happiness is not a trivial goal. Um, it's a difficult one to, proceed, uh, to, to pursue. It's a different, difficult one to achieve. Uh, and the part of what she's saying is that when you think about career, it's not just, well, reality is such that I got to get a job and then I just have to kind of, I don't know, I got to do something or my parents have certain expectations for what they want me to do. It's no, think more about what you, what you really love and what you want to build, what you want to create, what you want to develop and so on when you think about career. And I think she has a real seriousness with which she thinks about um, a young person looking out at life and facing a future. And I think in that context, I think the lesson is you really have to think about career as a source of, as a potential source of joy 
uh, and growth and expansion that you can find really satisfying. And I think for me, that just really stood out. And it's a wider perspective, I think, on the first lesson that we brought up, that to, to think of business as a moral and noble activity. The wider perspective is to think of uh, productive work and a career that is aimed at producing the values that move human life forward. You should think of that as that's what life's about. If you're taking life seriously and you're taking your own life seriously, it means pushing it forward, which means producing the things that push it forward. And you should not think of that as, yeah, it's something I've got to do. Life would be better if I didn't have to work and produce stuff. But yeah, that's the, what we've been resigned to, or that's what we've been assigned. Rather, this is the essence of life. The, the pursuit of values. And for human beings, the pursuit of values is not um, like a, a wolf that goes and hunts whatever happens to be around. Human beings produce, we make new things. And to think of that as that's what life's about, when you're doing that well, then you're moving life and your own life forward. And so it should be a source of, a source of joy. It's like this is what's important to achieve. And if you're actually achieving it and in the process of achieving it, you should have this perspective on, yeah, I'm doing what's good. I'm doing what's valuable. I'm doing what's right. And it should then be a source of um, the, the emotional accompaniment to that should be, yeah, this is great. Um, and it is, I'm proud of what I do and I'm excited about what I do. I'm excited by what will come next. And this is, Again, she's, I, I think of Ayn Rand as she, I think of different ways. She's the, a philosopher that the enlightenment deserved but didn't get. She's the greatest champion of the industrial revolution. And that goes to the, the place, the central place that business plays in what human life is about. Another way of thinking about it, and that I think connects to this is she reconceives what a spiritual life really means. So I, I think readers of The Fountainhead, you brought up the quote about The Fountainhead and, and Howard Rourke, they're perplexed often by, okay, Howard Rourke seems, he's, he's an architect, he wants to build things, he wants to build houses and skyscrapers. He seems in one sense immersed in the material world, and yet from a different perspective, he seems one of the most spiritual characters that you meet and he's dedicated to his craft and to his art and to his ideals and he will not compromise on them. And he even, like he's at the, the one scene that readers often remember, he's close to the end of his money. He's opened an architectural firm. He's close to the end of his money. He's offered a contract, but they wanna change stuff about what he wanted to build. And he refuses it. And people often take it as, oh yeah, so he's not really concerned with money. He's concerned with his ideals. And yet, if you read the whole story, he's concerned with both. And that, that, that one should think not of the material world and the spiritual world at odds with each other, but rather you can achieve these in an integrative perspective. And like real success in the material world takes a mind 
that really values and knows how to value firsthand and vice versa, that real valuing is concerned with moving life forward here on earth. So it's intensely concerned with the material. It's, it's again, th this portrait of that it's a false choice that I either have to be material, concerned with money, concerned with making a living, or I'm concerned with ideals, and then I shun money. And so that, Ayn Rand says, again, this is all wrong, and it's a false choice. You don't know how to think about either if this is the way you look at the world. Yeah, and I, I, I know that when I, so when we, when I put it as, you know, think of career as a source of joy, I think there's a certain respect in which uh, this is, it's possible, but it's a real aspiration. So, I mean, it's a lot of people will, will think of, well, that's easy to say, <laughs> it's harder to do. And there's something to that. There's something to that. It's that you really do have to think and put in some effort and take real risk, I think, uh, and have a certain amount of courage to be able to really spend the time and the effort thinking about what can you do? What do you want to do? What really, where really are your values? What do you really want to do for yourself, like personally? Um, and then pursue it when you, against often opposition, your parents telling you, for example, this is not very practical. Uh, no, you should go into a more stable, practical profession. And even if they mean well, that can often destabilize your, or sort of derail you a bit. Uh, from what you want to do. But you also have to, it's not just shoot for the stars and it's something dreamy. It's, you have to be realistic about what you're trying to pursue as well. But realistic doesn't mean, uh, you know, uh, sure you, the, you, you know, uh, you have a decent paycheck and you can get in and conventional <laughs> metric of, of what practical means. I mean, because practical can mean Maybe you don't really make a lot of money, but you do what you love. Um, and maybe, maybe you're, you're, the work that you love involves building money, creating money, making a lot of money and more money. Um, but you need to kind of get away from the kind of, I think, conventional perspective on what's practical in life. Because what is, you know, what's really unpractical? Having a job that sucks. Having a career you don't like. Like how practical is that? You know, you get a paycheck and you know you can support yourself or whatever, but then you you wind up with a certain degree of spiritual, even emptiness, not the right word, but you're lacking something. There's something missing uh, from your day-to-day -day functioning. It's this doesn't mean that much to me or something. And I think that one one is at a real loss in a way uh, if you don't really learn to think about career in this kind of way. But it's not that it's easy. It's just. Yeah, that's part of what's interesting about the Fountainhead as well, that <clears throat> Rourke is simultaneously realistic and incredibly ambitious. And at that combination of like he doesn't think it's going to be easy. He doesn't think he's going to win everybody over to the way he wants to build, but he thinks he'll be able to find enough clients that he'll be able to do this, the work that he wants to do, that he thinks is worth doing, that he loves. He thinks it's going to take time to build his career. He has a vision for how to go about doing that. He expects to have setbacks and obstacles, but he keeps pushing forward. And this is the, the sense that he doesn't settle, but nor is it just it's, it's reaching for the stars without any idea or conception of what is involved in that. 
And the, another thing that is very interesting in the fountainhead, and in terms of the way Ayn Rand thinks about, this is what a moral ideal looks like, this is what you should try to strive for and emulate, is Rourke, what does Rourke do in the book? It's, he doesn't fight wars, he doesn't go into battles, he's not fighting fires, he's not um, a police guy, he doesn't get in shootouts. It's what you see basically is he's building his career as an architect. That's the whole, and yet you get like there's something tremendously inspiring about that, the way he thinks about his work and his career and the role that that plays in his life and what he values. It, the, I mean, I find the Fountainhead, it's chock full of tension and conflict. And yet what the, the conflicts around, he's pursuing his career and he said he wants to be an architect and people are sort of either think he shouldn't or trying to oppose him and so on. And that, the, that's again, very unusual that it's not a, situation that's extreme in in that way um and i Rand's other novels are more like that i mean we the living is set in a dictatorship that's an extreme political situation and predicament anthem is set in a dysutopia and even atlas shrugged is it's a whole society that is on the verge of dictatorship the family it's not like that um it's not a world that's on the verge of a dictatorship though she thinks it's moving a in that direction or it's just here's a person who's trying to live his life and build his career and what that really takes and what that if you're doing it right why as you put it like it's a source of joy and it brings meaning to life and that perspective in the fountainhead again is it's a very uh unusual indeed i think unique perspective yeah, and I think that's one of the major takeaways I got from just read emotional takeaways, if I want to put it that way, from the Fountainhead was, uh, you can feel this way about a career. <laughs> I mean, Rourke is an incredibly spiritual uh, person, uh, and they, he's just invested. He's so deeply invested, and he he really knows what he wants. He knows what he wants to build. He has his own creative vision, uh, and he won't give it up. And to see what that looks like, I think in in some detail in the novel, I think is really uh, inspiring to the way people think about a job or a life they might lead or pursue. Shall we move to the next one? Yeah, so we've talked about two positive ones that I think really have resonated with readers of Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, um, and certainly resonated with both of us. Here's a negative point in the sense of, it's the elimination of a negative or of something that can get in the way of, of joy and of proper activity in a proper life, which you, we can put as, it's another lesson that you get from Ayn Rand is that you need to reject unearned guilt. That, so guilt is the emotion and an evaluation that you've done something wrong, um, that you've committed some, put it in a little bit of the language of anthem, some moral transgression. And you, the result is that you should think of yourself as diminished 
and sort of bow your head that it, it's you've done something wrong you need to do penance for it and what you get in Rand's thought and what you get in the novels is a major way in which uh, I'll put it a little bit more politically though you can put it more um, individually a major way in which evil ideologies try to control the individual is to make him experience, make him or her experience unearned guilt. So the, you haven't done something wrong, but you think you've done something wrong and you feel that you've done something wrong. And as a result, you don't view yourself as worthy or as fully worthy. It's um, and so it's, yeah, maybe other people are good. They should be in control or in command, not me, because there's something flawed, imperfect, unacceptable about me. And so you get from Ayn Rand, like, this is a perennial issue in life. And you have to really think through when you feel guilty, is it earned? Have you actually done something wrong, something that you should feel bad about, that you should try to make amends for? Or is it that people are trying to impose on you the idea that you've done something wrong when you haven't done something wrong? And that's the difference between unearned and earned guilt. And to take just one, I mean, there, there's many examples of this. I'll take one from, Atlas, but there's certainly many more from Atlas. The one that really stood out for me, and it actually relates to the first two lessons. In Atlas Shrugged, there's a discussion of the idea of original sin. And to say that she's against the idea is to put it pretty, pretty mildly. It's she rails against the idea of original sin, that it is a monstrous absurdity that, and and it's, it's one of the most evil ideas in Christianity, this idea that you're born with sin, that because of Adam supposedly made a wrong choice in the Garden of Eden, we're all now guilty and sinful. We should look at ourselves in the mirror as there's something wrong with us. We should have bowed heads. And then she, part of what she uh, in the novel asks you to think about is what is the crime in the Garden of Eden? They wanted to uh, taste of the tree of knowledge. They're interested in um, sexual relationship and sexual pleasure. And it's, it's the, um, the, and the punishment is now you're not going to live a life of ease. You have to work. Her view of the like it's all the glories of human existence that we're able to expand our knowledge indefinitely, that we can work and produce more things, new things, innovate, create, that we're able to enjoy sexual pleasure. These are all the glories of human existence. And these are things that you're supposed to feel guilty about and bad for. And it is, um, and this play, certainly plays out in the story of Atlas Shrugged. But to do this to a human being, to do it to, for things that you actually should be trying to achieve and make good on, 
that you should strive for positive, fulfilling sexual relationship, that you should strive for knowledge, that you should take business, career, work seriously and part of the essence of life. This is all you're supposed to feel guilty for. And that, that she thought, and I think it's right, that our culture is saturated with ideas like original sin that try to make you feel guilty either for things that you shouldn't feel guilty for or that you actually should view as like, this is something good, positive, admirable about myself. Yeah, and speaking of those, some of those things that uh, you were talking about from more guilt coming from a religious context. And one of the things that's interesting there is she thinks that what, what it does is something like original sin is it turns your emotional mechanism in reverse. So instead of getting positive emotions from the things that really do advance your life, that really do bring joy, uh, that bring values into the world, it makes you feel guilty for those. So you do all the things that are pro-life. In other words, they're in favor or advancing your life, and it makes you feel bad for them. So then what, what, what you then try to do, because you can't live, I think, you can't really live or continue to live um, uh, while thinking that you're no good. So I think guilt is a guilt is can be used as a weapon in that way. Um, and if you really think of yourself as no good, you have to do something to expiate that to, to resolve it to do something you think of as good. Um, and if you think of the things that support life, you know, uh, and that make life worth living as the bad, you, you know, you're going to act against those. But one of the things um, you said uh, in today's culture were there are things that we're taught to feel guilty for that we shouldn't and that we're not responsible for and so on i think the first example besides businessmen who are supposed to feel guilty by nature because they're they're uh they're pursuing profit are things like people being pushed to feel guilty for being privileged so to speak privileged or advantaged in various kinds of ways like you know you had two parents and you're middle class or whatever it is that you're supposed to feel some kind of some kind of responsibility for being in a position that's uh, where you have more advantages than some other people or also you know there's a lot of discussion about race and racism you know in the culture and there's a certain respect in which uh people are being taught to have have feelings of guilt for so so to speak the sins of their ancestors you know things like well, i don't know why i use air quotes but because <laughs> but actually the sins of uh of your ancestors, things like slavery, racism, I don't know what's the other thing, colonialism, various kinds of things where it looks like um, people in the past uh, have done things and then you're supposed to feel guilty for that in some way as being sort of related to or responsible for in some way uh, injustices that are present now. Um, and if you can get people to feel guilty for these kinds of things, they'll, they will try to work to do penance, to expiate that guilt in some way. Uh, and it's a way of uh, controlling people in a certain respect. I mean, if you really earn guilt, <laughs> like uh, you should own up to it. Uh, because I mean, getting that feeling of guilt is like, there's some way in which you're wrong for the world. There's some way and, and you need to get right again. Um, But there's just these, these ways in which if you can, if you can get people to feel guilt, uh, it's, it disarms them because they feel like they're in the wrong. And it's, you know, 
And I think just in many respects in which that comes up, religion's one of them, businessmen feeling guilty for the profit motive or anybody, uh, making people feel guilty for pursuing their own interests rather than donating to the poor or giving to the, uh, some charity or something. It's, but you, that's why you have to really be careful when it comes to morality about what you accept, what your views are about the nature of good and evil, about what is good and what's evil, because that will determine where you feel guilt and how much that impacts your life. And this is one of the reasons that there is so much discussion in Ayn Rand's work of what she called the morality of altruism. She, she will sometimes call it the morality of self-sacrifice. It's, it's the viewpoint that says your life and interests and happiness don't really count. They don't count morally. What If you're going to be moral, what you should be doing is be focused on the interest, welfare of something other than yourself. The traditional religious view is you don't count, God counts. And it, your whole orientation should be doing his commands, his will, obeying what he has set out for you. So, and, and it's pride is regarded as a sin because pride is now you're taking it your own life seriously. You think you're valuable. You think you should be the focus of your own concern. And it's no, you should be subordinating yourself and sacrificing yourself if necessary to what God decrees and what God commands. The whole story of Abraham and Isaac is like, yeah, set aside what is in your interest. You might value your son. You might love your son, but sacrifice it for the sake of God. That's what noble activity is. That's what moral activity is. Part of the reason she focuses so much on this is she knows that the motivation for this whole doctrine is to make people feel guilty. It's not that everybody is going to go around and say, yeah, my interests don't count at all. Like, I'm never going to do anything that is for me. My interest, my happiness, I couldn't care less about that. But so there's very few people who will do that. But what the people will do is, yeah, no, I come on. Sometimes I have to be concerned with my own interests. Sometimes my happiness seems like it counts and so on. Yeah, I know I really shouldn't be doing this. Um, I know it's a problem. I know it is not really moral. Yeah, I'm supposed to feel guilty about it. I do feel some guilt about it. If you tell me, okay, well, so donate some money to serve some people in some country I've never been to, and I don't know why they're in trouble and so on, but it's not about me. So yeah, I'll give some money for that. And so, and it is the, it's what people experience is various degrees of guilt. They know I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I know I'm not doing what's moral. I don't want to do it all the time, but yeah, it's a problem that I don't do it. And, and so the, this whole, that the way that guilt can grip a mind and impact the, the, both the worldview and the motivation for what one should do and what one shouldn't, um, is like she thinks this is a major, major element in terms of understanding the world. So it's not that businessmen 
like everybody gives up their businesses and says, yeah, profit's bad and so on. But what businessman will speak of his own career in moral terms that I'm doing something moral, I'm proud of it, I do it again, um, there's almost nobody will say that. And that's part of the, what guilt does to a person. Let's move on to the, uh, the next one, uh, because it also, I mean, it relates to this also is that, um, so I, I put this next lesson, I'd put it as uh, the pursuit of happiness is a moral endeavor. Now, if I asked you in the audience, uh, how many of you want to be happy? versus how many you want to be unhappy? Well, I assume everyone would say that they want to be happy, right? Uh, and I think in general, if your parents are decent people, they want you to be happy as well. <laughs> and they'll, tell, they'll probably tell you that. Um, but one, the, the way in which we've been taught to think about morality is to think, well, there's happiness on the one hand, and there's the pursuit of happiness on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's the moral. So yeah, you can pursue your happiness, um, but then you have to do all these things. You have to uh, live up to certain kind of moral duties uh, that are sort of on the other side. And as Ankar was saying, it, if you put it as it's, you think of morality in altruistic terms. So you think of morality as what we do for others, sacrifice for others and so on, um, that it puts it at odds with the pursuit of happiness. Uh, so that you have to sort of pursue your happiness a bit to some extent in a sort of damaged way and then fulfill the demands of morality, which they think of in altruistic terms, for some of the time as well. And so there's this way of living that is, you're not fully pursuing your happiness. You're not fully being moral. Uh, and one of the things that Ayn Rand uh, says, which is distinctive of her, I think, is that uh, she thinks of the pursuit of happiness as a moral endeavor. So the pursuit of happiness is not just morally okay, it's largely the essence and the goal of morality. It's what you're after in the end. So uh, when Ayn Rand thinks about morality, it's about, it's about I pursuing and enjoying the values that actually enhance and sustain and enrich a human being's life, an individual's life. But that's what morality is about. It's not service and sacrifice. It's not obedience to the will of a divine being. It's the pursuit and enjoyment of values the actual values that support your life. Um, and so the, uh, what one experiences when that is how one is living one's life, that you're actually pursuing the values that enhance and enrich and sustain it, and you're achieving it. Um, this is what happiness is about. This is the happiness is the experience that you get when you've, uh, um, you're actually getting and attaining the values your life requires, and you know what you're doing. Like you know that this, you're on the right track and you're getting what you want from life um, and what you actually need. And so she thinks of the pursuit of happiness as a, this is a moral pursuit, not just morally okay, but it's part of the essence of morality. And she puts it once she said, the, the, the purpose of morality is to teach you not to suffer and die, but to enjoy yourself and live. And I think, again, that's also just a, Nobody else is saying that. Um. It connects to the, I mean, it connects to all of these issues of business as a noble activity, which is part of rethinking the whole of morality. 
of rejecting unearned guilt. So there's many, many viewpoints that say, if your concern or if it's your primary concern in life, the pursuit of your happiness, there's something immoral about that. There's something you should feel guilty for that. And her view is, as you're saying, is the exact reverse. It's, you should feel pride and you should only feel full pride if you really are on a mission to achieve your own happiness. And then the, we, we talked a little bit about the figure of Howard Rourke. And I said, from one perspective, it's like, here's a guy pursuing his career as an architect. Where's the deep significance of that? But another way of putting it is what you have is, yeah, this is not a person fighting fires or bad guys. He's not in shootouts and so on. But what you have is a person who is pursuing his own happiness. And he's dedicated to that pursuit. I mean, part of what you quoted about, like, if you're going to, if I'm going to spend 60 years doing work that I don't enjoy, like, I can't. There's not, that's not a life that's a happy life. This is not something that I'm going to look when I get older. Or, yeah, I'm glad I did this. It'll be, no, this is a disaster. If what life is about is the living of it, then a different perspective on that is that it should be a life that is filled with happiness, that you thought this is worth living. I'm actually dedicated to moving my life forward. And that's what you see in Rourke. So the, and in the Fountainhead, that the pursuit of happiness is possible. It's not easy. So this whole kind of conventional viewpoint that, oh yeah, like if you're interested in your own happiness, in your own interest, that's the easiest thing in the world. Just do whatever you feel like doing. It's Ayn Rand's viewpoint and, and the lesson she drives home is, you don't have a clue about what happiness is. If you think it's just do whatever you feel like doing, you don't have a conception of the kind of life that could be led. And part of what she's interested in, but I, part of what has impacted so many people is her portrait in her fiction. This is the kind of life you could lead. You could lead a life like Howard Rourke. He's not doing whatever he feels like doing. He thinks carefully about what is actually worth pursuing in life. And then he pursues it intransigently and unreservedly, like it's a full dedication to his pursuit of happiness. And this is, um, this too is in terms of what impressed me about Ayn Rand. It was this, that it's, here's a different way of living. It's not easy, but it is possible. And if you actually achieve it, it's worth it. That this perspective, and it doesn't await for a next life and happiness in some other dimension that you've never heard of, never encountered, and supposedly exists but contradicts everything you know. It's like this is possible in this world. Um, and this is the sense in which I think so. Ayn Rand was an immigrant to America, but I think she viewed herself certainly as an American. She's an American in spirit and from basically when she started thinking to the end of her life, she's an American in spirit. And so she's sort of an American in exile. And this, the, the best aspect of America and what is unique and new with America is this, that look, we're creating a country where you're gonna enjoy the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
that you can live a life that will, that will actually be dedicated to your own individual happiness. And you're going to have the freedom to do that. That's, you get that as a political revolution. And what Ayn Rand is advocating and what you can learn from her is to really make good on the country that the founding fathers created, that they've given us the freedom to pursue our own happiness. You have to think deeply about what happiness is and why it is the essence of morality. And if you do that, you are living up to the political creation that the founding fathers have bequeathed to us. So she's, rather than the conservatives who think of themselves as that we're the people who respect the founding fathers, I think she's the only American intellectual who does because she takes the issue of the pursuit of happiness seriously and has developed a whole morality that says, yeah, this is what morality is about. And these are principles that are necessary if you're really going to achieve your own happiness. It's a good way to think about, I mean, what you think about what it's encapsulated. I mean, the whole point of the philosophy is to allow you to pursue your own life and achieve your own happiness. Uh, and it's an important orientation. We don't get that nowadays. Do you, let's, why don't we turn to some audience questions? Uh, I think we got some that have been yeah, sent in. Uh, let me start with one. This was uh, sent in in Spanish. Uh, so it's been translated for us here. Um, the question is, how would Ayn Rand answer the question, what do we owe each other? And I'll start by saying that in a, in a Q&A, in a, in a question and answer period, she uh, gave a good answer to this, which I like, which I always use. She said, um, rationality and hands off. And by that, she means, you know, when you interact with other people, what you owe them is um, reason, persuasion, not force. So it, what basically what you, uh, she thinks in, a, in a, so, a social setting, she thinks the initiation of force by one individual on another or a majority on an individual or whoever, the, any initiation of force is evil. Um, but what you owe your, your, uh, the people around you is simply rationality. It's not that you're born with duties, obligations that you're sort of born into, and then you have to live up to them in some way. Um, obviously, if you borrow somebody's money, you have to pay it back, right? There's a difference between that. But I think the question is more, are there fundamental obligations that we have to other people that just we stand under uh, in a certain respect? And I think that is you deal with people with by reason. And you, and you don't initiate force. Let me take a kind of the flip side of this question, but I think what often generates this question, it's what do we owe other people? Because there's a definite sense that someone's getting from Ayn Rand that it's, you don't, as you said it, you don't have all these duties and obligations unchosen that people say, uh, and almost every version of morality says, no, but you, your life belongs to other people. It belongs to God. You owe him service. You owe other people. Um, if you get really rich, you owe them charity. And so, and she's rejecting all of that. Um, and people often take it as, oh, okay. So she says, just, you don't care about other people. You'll exploit other people. And the positive here, and this is why, like, why do you owe rationality to other people? 
you should view other people as potential values. Like you want to live among people who are good, who are productive, who are rational. They move their own lives forward, but in that process, help move your life forward. This is part of the human beings as a species. We produce, we create, we grow our knowledge, we grow our abilities and so on. And you can learn and share in that with, learn from other people and share in their success and in their progress. But what that means is you have to separate out the people who are actually good from bad, who are bad. And so she doesn't have a view, oh, love everybody no matter what they do. Or so. You respect them and want to deal with them if they're rational. And what you owe them in return is to you yourself to be rational and productive. And then it's a trade where both sides are gaining. And so the, there's a caricature of Ayn Rand's views that it's, well, when she says it's about the pursuit of your own happiness, it's who cares about other people? That's not right. But nevertheless, what we've been taught about relations towards other people, she thinks is all wrong. Take another question we got in Spanish. Uh, this was, how can we overcome unearned guilt when it's a crucial aspect of the conventional morality we're surrounded with in Latin America? Um, and I would just start out by saying you, you have to ask, you have to really be take, you have to really seriously question what the nature of the moral code you're being taught is, and are there reasons for it? So if you can really come to understand there's something wrong with this moral code, it's telling me to feel guilty about this and that. And I don't think in my own judgment, I don't think I should feel guilty about those. There aren't good reasons for why I should feel guilty about these. That's only a first step because it takes time, I think, for um, values, judgments that have, you are, have become ingrained in various ways in us. They keep giving us their effects. They keep making us feel guilty, even though sometimes our mind is convinced uh, of, some, uh, of some point. Your emotions don't change that quickly, but you have to keep reasserting um, what your mind knows and understands. If you really understand that this is wrong, you have to keep remembering to tell you, this is coming from a wrong context. This is coming from a wrong set of values and judgments that I have now rejected or have come to think of as wrong. And you have to keep reasserting that. And I think that's, uh, it's not that it just goes away if you become convinced. Um, but to do that, you have to become convinced too, to even take the first step, I think, that there's something really wrong with what you're being taught. And that's part of why we put it as a lesson that, so it's, the question is like, how can we overcome unearned guilt when it's a crucial aspect of the conventional morality? It's a lesson for Ayn Rand that, to identify this, that it's, you have to think about what your morality is telling you and be able to evaluate it. So to not just take, well, but this is what everybody says is good. So that's what's good. And this is what everybody says is evil. And so I should feel guilty. And I do feel guilty when I do things that are, what everybody says is evil. And to get that it's, no, there's can be competing standards for what is good and evil. And then the issue of unearned, part of what, when we were talking about it, it's that 
it's deliberate. Like they're deliberately trying to make you feel guilty for things that you should not feel guilty for. And so how do you overcome it? Um, as is often said for these kinds of problems, the first step is identifying you have a problem. And that's part of what Aaron, you were saying, like you have to get be convinced that what's wrong. And part of that, why this is such a valuable lesson is Ayn Rand draws your attention to the fact that there's unearned guilt. And that, and the next step is that, and they're deliberately trying to inculcate unearned guilt in you. So you have to be, on watch and on guard for this issue throughout life in the in the contemporary world and that it just it reorients you to looking at the world to getting okay there's earn guilt there's stuff i should feel bad for and there's stuff i do feel bad for that i shouldn't and just being aware of that helps you then navigate it so we are at the at the hour if we want to maybe move on to, uh, so thanks for submitting your questions. Uh, so let me just share um, a few resources that you might wanna look into uh, to learn more about some of the things we've been talking about today. Um, one is certainly uh, Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. And another one uh, that I find a lot, I get a lot out of is, oh my, sorry, my copy's super beat up of philosophy, who needs it? Uh, it's really falling apart. Um, but right after this show, uh, we're gonna be continuing the discussion on Clubhouse, uh, on the Clubhouse app, which is available on Android and iOS. Uh, I also wanna tell you about next week's show. So we're gonna be doing an objectivism Q&A episode with my colleagues, uh, Ben Bayer and Mike Mazza. There's still time to send us questions for that episode too. You can email us at newideal at einrand.org. That's on February 9. And if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please subscribe uh, to our channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications for when we go live uh, or post new recordings. If you're watching um, the recording on, on Facebook, do the same, share, share the content and so on. Uh, if you have questions or comments uh, about today's, uh, to today's episode or you have suggestions for future episodes, uh, you can also email us at newideal at einran.org. We do read all of these emails and we reply to many of them. So uh, that's it for today's episode, but let's, uh, let's definitely finish on a happy birthday uh, to Ayn Rand. Uh, so I don't have a champagne glass or anything here, but happy birthday Ayn Rand and thanks for joining me Ankar. Thanks for joining everyone. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.